The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at lesliemarshallshow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome, welcome back. Only True Democracy in Talk Radio of, for, and by you, the people. In this hour, more than a pleasure to have back on the program the International Vice President of the United Steelworkers, the USW, Mr. Fred Redman. Mr. Redman also serves as the co-chair of the Labor Commission on Racial and Economic Justice and also as the vice chair of the AFL-CIO Civil and Human Rights Executive Council Committee. More than a pleasure to have Vice President Redman back on the show. Mr. Redman, thank you for rejoining us. Happy Friday, sir, and thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Leslie. Glad to be with you. Um, Always good uh, to have you uh, back. Uh, So much to talk about, and I want to start with a blog that folks can read on the Huffington Post uh, every Friday. And um, it or is it every uh, it's every Monday, but it's it's up there. It's front page every single day. And there's every week a new um, blog uh, by Leo Girard, the USW International president. And uh, in addition to that, you can follow him, folks, at USW Blogger. And you can see that. And on our uh, Twitter page, Facebook, everywhere, um, we um, re uh, we resubmit this uh, blog, the latest of which um, is uh, not the latest, one of the latest in this month, Canadian Mounties to the Rescue of American Workers. Now, just to read that headline, um, and when you hear that the Canadian Royal Mounties have offered to ride to the rescue of the beleaguered beleaguered American worker, when you read the headline, it, it doesn't sound right. I mean, right? I mean, America always says, we're the best, uh, we're the bravest, um, we're uh, the heroes. Um, Look at what we've done. Look at the Statue of Liberty, uh, a symbol of inclusion. You know, everybody, you know, come to, come here, those, the the masses, come here, those who are weary, come here. And that lamp that lights uh, the way um, and uh, lights the way for those who need help, uh, the homeless, the refugees, uh, the, the distressed. America is often, you know, looked at as a comforter and somebody who protects the under, the underdog, somebody who champions uh, the little guy. And um, the United States is doing that by demanding, for example, the negotiations to rewrite NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. Um, Mexico has terrible work standards and, and wages – and and now we have Canada, who's a third party in the NAFTA triangle, and they're insisting that we in America fortify the workers' collective bargaining rights. Is this crazy, Mr. Redmond, that we have another country that is looking out for the working man and woman, the working class in this country, in a sense more so than our own country currently? Well, it, it, uh, Leslie, I agree. I mean, the statement in itself, sounds somewhat absurd, but the fact of the matter is, it's true. I mean, the United States, you know, this administration enters into uh, discussions for this president to meet a campaign promise, which is to renegotiate NAFTA, which our union has been very 
supportive because we do feel that there are some flaws and some failures in the overall NAFTA agreement. But Canada, I mean, the United States felt as though uh, them, along with Canada, would take this opportunity to beat up Mexico and to talk about suppression of the Mexican workers. But Canada took it upon themselves to point out flaws during these negotiations uh, with U.S. labor law and how U.S. labor law have suppressed workers here in the United States, particularly uh, right-to-work legislation, which we refer to as the right-to-work for less. And Canada have, you know, demanded during these negotiations that in order for them to, in order for Canada to remain competitive and to really, really level the playing field uh, in terms of, um, uh, you know, workers' rates and pay and benefits for workers is that they're at a severe disadvantage in terms of competing with the United States because of uh, right-to-work laws that's been implemented now in, like, 22 uh, states throughout the United States. In Mexico, there are company-controlled, quote, fake labor unions. Is, is that correct? That is correct. That is correct. And, it's, uh, and it, has been a, uh, it has been a scorn on Mexican workers. It has prevented, uh, you know, these uh, fake uh, government-controlled unions have really suppressed workers and suppressed workers' rages and uh, you know, it's been a problem. It was one of the problems that was pointed out throughout the uh, original negotiations um, regarding NAFTA. Um, when we uh, look at that, uh, I, I mean, you know, those, quote, fake labor unions, this is part of uh, the problem south of the border, right? I mean, the wages that are paid are poverty level, and that's, that's right. why some U.S. factories go south of the border, I know that we're insisting that Mexico eliminate those company-controlled fake labor unions that we just talked about. Um, but to prevent um, the U.S. and Mexico from luring Canadian companies away, Canada is stipulating that the U.S. eliminate laws that empower corporations and weaken workers. Can we talk specifically about some of those laws that empower corporations and weaken workers? Well, sure. I mean, you know... Um... You know, the right-to-work legislation in the United States that's uh, being imposed by some states is uh, severely uh, harm workers. And, and um, you know, what it does is it, um, it says that labor unions have to represent workers uh, in, a, in a factory or a work site where a union is present, whether or not uh, the workers pay union dues. And it's not a thing, Leslie, about the unions collecting dues and getting rich. It's about the unions generating capital in order to allow unions to be effective and represent their members. Uh, the resources that union uses go towards collective bargaining, go toward, uh, in some portions of those dues, you know, go toward uh, uh, building uh, contract campaigns in order to uh, strengthen workers' hands at the bargaining table. It go towards uh, training workers, you know, in terms of safety and health and uh, providing safety and health legislations on the job. So we're right to work do. 
is it gives it it demands that labor unions continue to offer contract protections and negotiate and represent workers and in some cases hire lawyers you know to represent workers in uh, grievance situations but it does not uh, require uh, folks to pay dues in order to retain those services so what generally happens is and the intent of the law is to re is to weaken labor unions, which hamper I mean financially, which hamper their ability to represent workers. And um, you know, with regard to that, um, you know, would you say that right to work is uh, not only a bogus term but a bogus law? Well, it's, it's it's definitely a bogus law because I don't think you could name any other organization in the United States that provides services. Uh, to people uh, with, you know, and, and it's a organization that collect dues from its members, let's say a golf course. You want to play golf, you pay, you know, to belong to a country club. you got all rights and privileges as a member of the country club, you know, but uh, if you don't pay your dues, you don't have access to the country club. On the right to work, you know, you don't pay dues, but you still have rights and access to the union, and the union is legally bound by law to represent you and to um, bargain on your behalf. But what it does is it constrains the union from raising the necessary resources through dues collections in order to represent its people. So it's a bogus law. It's, 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 it's intended to weaken unions by uh uh, eliminating and draining and greatly reducing their resources. And once the resources are greatly reduced, then, you know, logic just 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 have it that, you know, we're uh, restrained from providing the type of representational services that we are required to uh, perform under law and we are, you know, uh, obligated to uh, perform in order to represent our members at the collective bargaining table and to make sure that uh, workplace democracy is being adhered to by employers throughout the country. We're going to take a break, and we'll be back with our guest, the International Vice President of the United Steelworkers, the USW, Mr. Fred Redman. In the meantime, go to the website, usw.org. You can read this great blog we're talking about. Follow Leo, the president of the USW, on Twitter, at USWblogger, and be sure to follow the Steelworkers at Steelworkers. Quick break. We'll be back to Mr. Redman. And you, if you have any questions about this, about NAFTA, 888-6LESLIE, 888-653. 7543 is the number back in a moment after this. Chair of the Labor Commission, I'm 
racial and economic justice, vice chair of the AFL-CIO Civil and Human Rights Executive Council Committee, and international vice president of the United Steelworkers, the USW, Mr. Fred Redmond, who joins us. Uh, we are talking uh, NAFTA. But we are talking specifics and specifics with uh, a neighbor to the north who we have had a great relationship with. Um, I do fear if that relationship will be uh, tested with our current administration, very different uh, than that of the administration north in Canada of Justin Trudeau, who uh, certainly leans more left as Canada does uh, being uh, more of a socialist nation. Uh, Canadian negotiators are demanding that the U.S. roll back so-called right-to-work laws as part of the renegotiation of the North American Free Trade Agreement. And that request is part of a push uh, by Ottawa to get not just the United States, but to get Mexico as well to adopt higher labor standards under uh, the deal. Now, Mr. Redmond, there are some that may just, uh, you know, tune in and may say, um, shouldn't unions like the USW don't, you, you know, what, what, let's just be clear. What is the USW's opinion of NAFTA? Because if we ship jobs overseas, that obviously hurts American workers. And that certainly hurts American union workers and American unions. So, first of all, what what is the USW's position on NAFTA? Is this something we need to go away, or is it really impossible because we, along with our neighbors here, uh, you know, Mexico and Canada, are so entrenched in this? Well, we think well. Well, we've been against NAFTA, the current structure of NAFTA, since uh, the inception of NAFTA. Uh, we challenged the Clinton administration uh, when NAFTA was first negotiated. We uh, warned the Clinton administration on what it would do, you know, in terms to um, United States manufacturing, how, um, you know, Mexico uh, set up these um, company, government-controlled unions and lure U.S. employers to Mexico where the government sanctioned under the uh, pretext of these fake unions, uh, you know, they sanction low wages. And, uh, you know, U.S. companies have flocked south of the border, you know, in order, and, and, and as a result, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of American workers have lost their jobs. So we've been against NASA on the pretext that, you know, it did not level the playing field for the American workers with a particularly focus on Mexico. And then when we look at issues like border adjustment tax, where we see lack of a border adjustment tax, where we see U.S. manufacturers, particularly in the auto parts industry, you know, going over to Mexico, producing today not just auto parts, but, but auto, you know, but assembling automobiles, you know, for cheap labor and then bringing them across the border you know, without paying tax and then selling them to the U.S. consumer at top uh, rates that, you know, we think that the whole NAFTA agreement is flawed and it does a serious disadvantage to the American worker. So now this president campaign, and we support the, the, the whole premise, is that, no, is that NAFTA, you know, need to be negotiated and uh, we need to uplift the uh, low wages that uh, – Majority U.S. corporations that have migrated to Mexico have exploited the Mexican workers under the sanction of the Mexican government. But now Canada have stepped up to the plate, and they pointed out flaws in the U.S. labor law that they claim have prevented them from being competitive 
when Canada, under their, under their legislation and uh, provinces throughout Canada, Canada encouraged unionization. You know, uh, uh, and their theory is it, it takes unionization to counterbalance powerful corporations that exploit workers. And in some Canadian provinces, for example, corporations are prohibited from hiring replacement workers when workers strike. And striking workers are permitted to picket the companies that sell to or buy from the employer. Uh, labor agreements in Canada must contain successorship rights, requiring a corporation that buys uh, an employer to recognize the union and abide by its labor agreements. None of those things exist under U.S. labor law. Under U.S. labor law, uh, you know, corporations have the right to temporarily or, or, or permanently replace workers. Uh, labor agreements are not protected under U.S. labor law. When a company comes in and uh, acquires a company, it's up to the union to negotiate successorship rights. There's no enforcement uh, by the government. And then, uh, most of all, you know, the Canadians have uh, pointed out that they're at a labor disadvantage because uh, right to work, you know, legalizes companies and authorized companies to uh, impose uh, the, the, the right of employees not to pay union dues, but the law required unions to represent such employees. So the United States entered into this renegotiations with NAFTA, hoping to get assistance from Canada in order to uh, bring up the labor standards in Mexico in order to make the, make the landscape more competitive uh, for the American worker, and we support that, okay? But we think Canada bring up a legitimate argument in saying that the American labor laws, you know, do not level the playing field for Canadian workers because of the deficiencies in the American labor laws, particularly the right-to-work uh, legislation that's being passed in states around the country. Mexico is also campaigning to include its oil and gas sector in this deal, correct? Correct, correct. And um, that would definitely, um, you know, put the, put the U.S. and Canada at a severe disadvantage because of, uh, you know, the, um, well, first of all, because of the lack of safety standards. Right. Mr. Redman, can you hold that thought? I want you to uh, say second of all when we come back regarding uh, uh, you know, Mexico's uh, urging about oil and gas in that sector to be a part of the deal. We're going to take a break. That's our shortest segment in the hour. We'll be back with Mr. Fred Redman, International Vice President of the United Steelworkers. Follow them on Twitter, at Steelworkers. Follow Leo at USW Blogger. USW.org is the website. I know a lot of you get into your weekend, but we'd love for you to join us. Some of you just listening, participate and call at 888-6-LESLEY, 888-653-7543. Mr. Fred Redmond's our guest. He's been on the show before. More than a pleasure to have him back. International Vice President of the United Steelworkers, the USW. He serves as the co-chair of the Labor Commission on Racial and Economic Justice and the vice chair of the AFL-CIO Civil and Human Rights Executive Council Committee. Be sure to check out the website for USWUSW.org. On Twitter, follow the Steelworkers at Steelworkers and Leo Gerard's Twitter handle 
at USW Blogger. Uh, thank you for holding, uh, Mr. Redman. Uh, first, I had sure. to interrupt you. I apologize. And I, you, you were talking no, no, about okay. we were talking about uh, Mexico wanting their oil and gas sector to be a part, you know, uh, of any deal, like a requirement to be a part of any deal. And and you uh, had said in the first place. And uh, please continue before I go on to more questions. Oh no, 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 no problem, Leslie. No, I just want to mention a fact that the oil and gas sectors in the United States. Uh, you know, they are regulated by the Occupational Safety and Health Act, OSHA. Uh, these are very, very um, dangerous jobs for workers. Uh, regulation is necessary in these industries in order to ensure workers' safety. Um, in Mexico's gas and oil sector is a very risky sector. Uh, workers suffer the highest rate in Mexico. Uh, that work in the oil and gas sectors than any other workers in Mexico in terms of uh, severe work hazards. And, um, you know, we think to include uh, the oil and gas sectors from Mexico into the NAFTA agreement could bring down standards in the United States as the United States try to remain competitive in those two industries. Um, I, I I want to um, – there's uh, so much to talk about with this, but the Canadian legislation encourages unionization. And, and the reason they do this is they feel that we must counterbalance powerful corporations. Now, I know you're going to agree with that. I agree with it 100%, but let's talk about this even further. In sure. Canada, for example, because they're the ones saying this, 31.8% of their workers were represented by a union in 2005. That's up 0.3 percentage points from 2014. So it's really no surprise that our neighbors to the north, Canada, are looking for the United States to step up. Because let's talk about the encouragement of unionization as opposed to the demonization of unionization that we've heard by the right throughout the past year in the campaign. Uh, This president and uh, that rhetoric that comes out not only of his mouth but of Republicans' mouths. Uh, but, But there is a counterbalance needed for these powerful corporations. And quite frankly, one of the reasons Bernie Sanders did well and even Donald Trump is America was sick of corporations, you know, running everything, including politics. So why, you know, wouldn't more Americans, Republicans as well, be on board uh, in favor of this counterbalance, which we clearly need and which unions can provide here, as we've seen not only here, but in Canada? Well, it's, it's less than when we look at the, the, uh, the level of unionism in the United States, if we go back to the 50s and the 60s, uh, you know, when they were equivalent to what Canada is today, when we look at uh, those levels, when unionism in the United States were, were in the 30, mid-30% range, then what we saw in this country was we saw, uh, you know, more Americans, uh, you know, being able to, um uh, you know, live what what we refer to as the American dream, middle-class lifestyle. There was a counterbalance. I think that corporations, when we look at, uh, let's say, from the mid-50s throughout the 1960s, uh, we think that uh, corporate CEOs made something like, oh, I think it was something like 20 times more, you know, than uh, the workers who they had working uh, for them, and now, I mean, the number is astronomically, you know, we're talking, you know, something like um, close to a thousand times more, you know, than the average worker. So, you know, there was a counterbalance where you had a larger middle class, 
corporations that were still profitable. You had more people paying taxes. You had, and as a result, you had uh, much better school systems when it comes to the amount of capital, you know, that was that was the amount of money that was used per child to educate children and educate our children in the public school system. Uh, but when you look at that counterbalance, it started to slip in the United States as the rate of unionization went down and corporate profits went up. So, you know, the whole theory of, uh, you know, the whole theory of trickle-down economics, you know, we've tried it before. It didn't work. You know, we went into a recession in the 80s as a result of Reaganomics. This whole trickle-down theory is that the more money that you uh, give to the top wage earners in the United States, the top 10%, you know, is that as a result they will invest more money into companies, and that money as a result will trickle down, you know, to the workers, and it just haven't worked. You know, it just haven't worked. What we see is we see uh, 10% of the wealthiest people in this country controlling something like 60% of the wealth. So, you know, there's definitely no balance in terms of uh, economic security in the United States. Now, as opposed to Canada, you know, Canada's economy, you know, feel as though, you know, that counterbalance will allow, you know, their uh, country to work. You have a larger distribution of uh, wealth. I mean, the more people that have sustainable income, the more people is putting money back into the economy. So it's a different economic theory that uh, works in uh, Canada that they feel is far superior than uh, what we have in the United States. And we're inclined to agree, you know, with them, Um, you know, particularly when you're talking about a country where, you know, workers are provided with some sort of national health care form and, uh, you know, some sort of national health care system, and then you also don't have the high rates of tuition as we have in the United States. Have have the numbers of unionized workers in the United States in comparison with Canada decreased over over the years, Mr. Redman? Absolutely, absolutely. In the United States today, the uh, unionization rates in the United States have declined at 10.7%. And the uh, number of workers in union dropped by nearly a quarter million um, just from the previous year. So we're down to 10.7%, and that includes public and private sector workers. And with some of the legislation that's pending uh, now, and we look at the case before the Supreme Court and uh, Janus versus ASME, a big case that's going before the Supreme Court sometime next uh it should be before the court next spring. What it will do, if uh, you know, if Janice is successful in that case, what it would do is really outlaw uh, union checkoff uh, for public sector workers. Where in order to belong to a union in the public sector under the Janice case, then uh, even where we have negotiated checkoff now, that would be eliminated, and unions would be forced to. Uh, either hand-collect dues or work out arrangements with their uh, members to deduct dues from checking accounts, but the employers would not be obligated, as they are now, through collective bargaining, to
to uh, check off dues uh, because employees signed a checkoff card and forward the dues to the union. So it's laws like this that's intended to weaken unions' ability to um, generate the revenue that it takes in order for us to, you know, negotiate contracts and to, uh, you know, represent uh, workplace democracy and work rules and things that, you know, make life better for our members. Um, in Canada, I know the majority of those that um, uh, are unionized workers are represented by national unions. Is the same true here in the United States? Yeah, yeah, the system is basically the same. I mean, in the United States, uh, you have uh, private sector unions today is uh, the largest uh, group of unionized workers. Uh, I'm sorry, public sector unions are the largest group of unionized workers. And that's how come we saw such vicious attacks in Wisconsin and Michigan against um, uh, public sector workers and the Janus versus Illinois case is going to continue to further erode uh, that organizing base. And then when we look at private sector unions, private sector unions is down to around 7% of the, over, of the overall um, workforce in this country. So the combination of the two have reduced the numbers overall to 10.7%. But, uh, yeah, our structure in the United States is the same as Canada. You know, we have international unions, and the international unions have local unions that deliver the representational services uh, to to the members on the shop floor on a day-to-day basis. And Canada's structure is the same way. And uh, regarding um, the unions and uh, those workers, in Canada, I think it's two-thirds are, you know, federal employees, if you will, for them. Um, are most of our uh, union workers federal employees here? Yeah, yeah. The uh, federal employees is what we consider public sector employees. But we have a large number. The majority of unionized uh, public sector employees in the United States happen to be state, county, and municipal employees. Uh, you know, we, you know, organized labor represent employees on the state on the municipal and on the county levels. And then, I mean, when you look at uh, on the federal level, I mean, people who work in Social Security and people that work in government agencies throughout the country is unionized. Uh, So, you know, the state, county, municipal employees are the largest group combined, and then the federal employees, which makes up the numbers and uh, what we refer to as the public sector unions. Um, let's also talk about how vital it is for all workers here in the United States to have strong union membership across the country. Uh, Right-to-work laws threaten that, right? And we even have studies that show when we have that union membership decline that we were just talking about, those numbers declining, the wages due for all Americans, not just union workers as well. And like I said, studies show this. This isn't just something, this isn't, you know, some kind of political, you know, headline or something to throw out in a campaign campaign speech. So um, talk to us about how right to law, right to work, excuse me, laws, um, uh, you know, work to break down that strength of, of union membership. And also how when union membership declines, that affects wages for all Americans. Sure. Sure, and, and, and you know, logic just 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 tell you, Leslie, that 
if you have a servicing organization that provides services and uh, members pay for those services, if, uh, if if the organization is required to continue to represent or provide services to its members, um, but the members are 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 uh, have an option, or or in, in some cases under some legislations are exempt, you know, from paying dues, then you know, no matter how honorable or how committed the organization is, it just becomes a matter of logic that at some point. You know, your ability to provide services are hampered because of your inability to have resources in order to provide the services. Now, in terms of collective bargaining, there's not there's no mechanism in this country that have built the middle class more than collective bargaining. I mean, collective bargaining is what built the middle class in this country with the steel mills, the stockyards, the auto plants, you know, throughout this country that caused the great migration from the south to the north during the industrial, during the period after the Industrial Revolution that really built black middle class, that really uh, 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 brought the, uh, uh, poor whites from the south to the north and enabled them to earn a living, to buy a house, afford a car, you know, after we went through the period where the big agri companies just, just dismantled the American farmer who was trying to scratch his living out of the soil. And what happens is, through collective bargaining, as we've been able to uh, negotiate wages and benefits and to ensure that our members share some of the wealth that they help to create every day, then, uh, you know, the rising tides have lifted all boats. So it just stands to reason that if an employer has a unionized plan and through collective bargaining, you know, uh, uh, workers are making, you know, a decent wage, let's say 25 bucks an hour, okay, is that uh, he is not going to be able to sustain that level of workers, not even at the non-union competitor, is going to have to pay comparable workers in order to get the skilled workers when, you know, even in the non-union facility. And then as far as uh, white-collar management is concerned, you know, as you lift up the workers' wages, then the, then the manager's wages are also lifted up, you know, uh, are also risen. So, you know, it's a ripple effect. As collective bargaining rise wages, then rising tasks lift all boats, you know. And that's the way the collective bargaining has functioned in this country over the years. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, companies, I, I know of no companies that have been bankrupt for paying fair wages, Okay and providing fair benefits. It's about how much is enough, you know, for corporate CEOs, how much is enough for their corporate bonuses, how much is enough for their stock portfolios. But the object of a sound economy is for workers to be able to share in the wealth that they help create. Henry Ford had it right. He said, I want to pay my workers enough money so that they could afford the cars that they built. And that's been the premise, and that's been the premise of organized labor throughout its history, is to provide workers with enough resources and benefits to support their families, but also to contribute to the American economy by making enough money to be good consumers. Uh, in this um, last uh, minute before the break, Mr. Redmond, what would sure. you like us to leave with? I mean, it's important to have new language for labor standards and a new NAFTA 
but it, it must be paired with actual penalties when countries fail to meet those standards, such as border adjustment, taxes on exports, and more. What yeah. would you like to leave our listeners with uh, based on everything we've discussed today? NAFTA would only work if, if the playing field was leveled for Mexican workers, American workers, and Canadian workers, and if workers was allowed to perform under similar standards. I'm not going to say exact standards because, you know, that could vary from country to country, but if uh, workers in all three countries that compose NAFTA, if workers were to work in an environment in their respective countries where all three of the NAFTA partners respected human rights, okay, and there was not abuse of child labor and, you know, as it is in uh, uh, um, Mexico, you know, as long as that playing field was leveled, uh, uh, as long as we had common labor rights, okay, where uh, labor rights, uh, the, the, the decline of labor rights in the United States was leveled off uh, to equal the uh, level of labor rights in Canada, and the labor rights for Mexico was risen up, okay, to meet uh, an equivalent level as the United States and Canada. Only when you have a comparable system, okay, can trade agreements like NAFTA work. But when you have a three-party agreement and one party has the advantages, another party has all the disadvantages, then there's no parity in the system. And people exploit the system within the labor agreement, you know, people will take advantage of one country over another. And that's when you get the disparities like we have gotten in NAFTA, where we see millions of jobs lose, leave the U.S. and go to Mexico because labor standards in Mexico have not been equivalent to the United States. And now we're seeing that erosion from the uh, from America to Canada. I'm sorry, from Canada to America, where uh, we see uh, employers in Canada complaining about the disadvantages they have compared to American labor standards. Only when those standards are level can you have a fear, can you have a good trade deal between multi countries. Absolutely. Mr. Redmond, thank you. International Vice President of the United Steelworkers USW, Mr. Fred Redmond. Their website is usw.org. Follow them on Twitter at Steelworkers. Follow President Gerard at USW Blogger. We'll be back with Talk Media News after this. <laughs> 